From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, our focus is on historical black colleges and universities, otherwise known as HBCUs. We begin with author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, Ron Stodgill. And after that, Dr. Elwood Robinson, Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University, joins us to continue the discussion coming up on The Public Morality. In post-Civil War America, historical black colleges and universities, which are commonly referred as HBCUs, have played a crucial role in educating African Americans. At a time when attending a predominantly white institution of higher learning was not a viable option for many African Americans, HBCUs were producing Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King, Toni Morrison, Oprah Winfrey, and so many others who have gone on to influence the nation in myriad ways. Public Morality proudly broadcasts from Winston-Salem State University, which is indeed an HBCU. But now, HBCUs find themselves at a crossroads that could potentially threaten its very existence. To begin the conversation, we have with us author and journalist Ron Stodgill. His latest book is entitled, Where Everybody Looks Like Me, at the Crossroads of America's Black Colleges. Ron Stodgill, welcome to The Public Morality. Byron, thank you very much for having me. Now, I always like to begin by asking the author what he or she was trying to say uh, when they wrote the book. So we'll let that serve as a starting point. What are you saying where, where everybody looks like me? Well, the, the genesis of the book, and I really can't separate it much from the work that I had done prior, uh, you know, two, three decades as a, as a journalist. I spent years as a New, at the New York Times and at Time Magazine as an editor of Savoy. And at those uh, publications, just did a lot of reporting on race and culture. And so flash f- uh, forward a few years, I wind up at, at Johnson C. Smith University, which is a small liberal arts uh, African-American, uh, it's a HBCU in Charlotte, which was uh, historically black colleges mm-hmm. and universities. And there was a natural, just like any other great story that a journalist might encounter, it just had all the elements of a, of a great story. These were institutions that dated back to post-slavery. They were created to educate freed slaves. Uh, they were under duress from uh, from 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 all forces, whether it be sort of the competitive landscape, from the political uh, institutions, and 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 it had heroes and villains. Uh, there was a, a lot at stake, and I just thought and I'm teaching at one, but I could not help but start to pull my notebook out, take some notes, and start reporting and and talking to people. And and I wanted to tell that story because I thought it was just not a black story. It was a, a an American story. Yeah, we're going to come back to that. Um, but the, the, the medium that you chose to write the book— um, just talk about that medium and your and your approach and why you chose that particular approach to tell this story. Well, I chose I, I like to do long form narrative nonfiction. And so it uses the device of uh, devices of a novelist, whether it's setting and characterization and uh, and, and theme and 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 uh, and all of that, though, has to be reported out. But it also, I think, is 
more engaging and compelling than, say, a regular newspaper or magazine article. And I wanted to just grab the reader's attention with that. I felt like the story merited, it had a kind of an epic feel. And it merited a real narrative arc, and I found that arc in through the through the characters that were all stakeholders, whether they be students or trustees or professors. And I told the you know I told the the story in there with through their eyes, and that's how I created this this world that I think um, I wanted to give a window into. Part of um what I took, that you write about a legacy that obviously touts, you know, Benjamin Mays, Martin Luther King Jr., more contemporary, Spike Lee, Alice Walker, I mean, Oprah Winfrey. But, but you also talk about how HBCUs have cultivated strong support from individuals with absolutely no ties to HBCUs. How is that? I mean, that is one of the, I think, undertold, narratives within HBCUs and within that history, Byron, is that uh, there are many, many stakeholders that transcend our community. I mean, the schools were um, born out of a push from abolitionists and white missionaries in many cases, and it wasn't until the mid-19th, mid-20th century, rather, that we had our first African-American presidents of these universities. Most of the schools had white presidents probably up until like the 60s. Uh, and so there are, they're a huge constituency and an undertold. I mean, there's one um, chapter in particular, which is with Johnny Taylor, who runs the Thurgood Marshall Foundation. And he makes the the point that most of his strongest supporters, which I found to be ironic, were, were wealthy white Republicans um, and their wives uh, that they are the big and and the the the, the least, I guess, uh, reliable funding. He said was from the Bob Johnsons of the world. You know, the and Bob founder, Johnson, uh, the founder of uh, BET, right. the billionaire entrepreneur. Uh, and so, you know, he there's a paradox there. And so, I wanted to draw that out. Mm-hmm. You know, since you, you mentioned um, in a previous answer about um, that, the presidents of these universities weren't African-American until, like, beginning to be African-American like to, like, the mid-'60s? Perfect segue for my next question. Why did you begin the book by capturing President Obama's uh, commencement speech at Morehouse? Why, why, why was that significant? Well, I really told the, the book. I found a narrative arc, Byron, in 2013, you know, which was kind of the year of the perfect storm, if you will. It was... A lot. There were. That's when the cutbacks um, in federal funding really through changes in lending standards. It was a. There's a program called the Parent Plus Program, which is administered by the Department of Education, and they changed the lending criteria in which um, folks could get money. And so suddenly, students or families that were that qualified for for student funding didn't get it anymore. Uh, that was part of kind of grew out of the banking crisis. So that you had 
thousands of students that that couldn't go to school there anymore, couldn't go to their universities. And then you had other little flashpoints, like you may recall that Grambling, the football team, just said, you know what, we're tired of catching buses, we're tired of paying for our own Gatorade, we're tired of this crappy locker room, you know, we're not going to play next weekend. And, and, and Grambling they, is one of the, his, you know, a storied college football program. Absolutely, storied college program, and um, known for its, its band, you know, and high-stepping band, known for um, its uh, coaching, and just known it's produced, you know, some professional um, football players as well. And so, and then you had Barack Obama, who gave the commencement speech that year at Morehouse, and the speech was relatively contentious because of the message. It was a message of tough love, but it also was a message that kind of rubbed some people the wrong way because it was a message that said, look, young men, uh, you know, make sure you, 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 you know, you got, you got to get your act together if you're going to go out here and, and really achieve the way you're supposed to achieve in the way we want, uh, the way people expect you to. And in a way, it was just like, come on, you know, is that the message you would have given at, at Yale? Is that the, I mean, these were young, black strivers, achievers. And in a way, you, it felt like a browbeating that was maybe not necessary. And it came off like that. So I thought that that kind of, was the conundrum that HBCUs face, which is a strong, strong legacy, but yet lots of work to still be done. And maybe they're at a perilous kind of point here in their survival, and so they needed to hear um, they're they're at a crossroads. Mm -hmm. And so that is the, it's not just about higher ed, it's about the culture generally. It is the backbone of of the black middle class and the nerve center for our most important conversations. I mean, the black college is, you know, embodies us as as a people in a great bellwether to kind of assess where we're where we're at at any given moment. Now, how many uh, HBCUs are currently in existence? About 104. Now, you cite uh, in your book by uh, that 2035 is the number where it will shrink down to roughly, uh, I think, I believe it was 35. And, and of those, 15 will be thriving financially. What does that say to you? I mean, look. And those numbers, I mean, you can you can debate them. They're all projections. They're all through reporting from 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 experts. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm not a an HBCU expert. I just kind of went in and 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 did a deep dive on this topic. But I, you know, I have been covering business and institutions, um, you know, nonprofits and 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 for profits for you know two, three decades. And, and so ultimately, if you, you could make the case that if HBCUs were vital during their heyday, that eventually they would have put themselves out of business anyway, because they would have created the kind of student that could um, uh, be absorbed into the natural sort of uh, more mainstream institutions. But some of them are just being selected out. They're just being selected out through uh, they don't have the funding, for instance, say, of uh, if, if, if Johnson C. Smith or Barbara Scotia or Elizabeth City or St. Aug 
or Winston-Salem State is trying to compete against a Duke or Chapel Hill, some of the best, some bright high school student, those schools don't have the money sometimes to throw at that really, really talented school. So they lose the best and the brightest often to those schools. And then you have mismanagement that happens all over the place of just, you know, trustees and, the um, you know, rubber stamp um, boards um, uh, that that are moving in ways that don't necessarily benefit the universities. And then you have economies of scale that you just, a lot of the schools that I just mentioned, some of them are just under, you know, a thousand students. And how do you compete? With um, with a with a school with, that's got fifteen thousand students and and alumni giving, you know, just the, the the students that we do that we do graduate, are they giving back to the um, schools? And so those those rates are typically lower um, than they than they need to be. So there are a lot of forces I think that are going to just make those schools the ones that can't hang. They'll just uh, get selected out in kind of a Darwinian way and then they'll into extinction. I do think, though, that, that the strongest will, will survive and need to. Talking with author Ron Stodgill. The irony to your previous answer, though, by 2040 uh, is when the, the, the nation is projected to become a majority-minority country. Uh, yes. And why are we seeing the decline of HBU, HBCUs at a time when the minority population is increasing. I know. I just think about that. I don't even have a great answer for that. I just think that there's so many ironies there. You look at um, even at a secondary level, um, those schools are becoming, after many, many years of desegregation efforts, they're becoming more and more segregated, you know? And so you got white families that don't want their kids to study and go to school with, you know, uh, little the little black kids, but yet you don't see a need in this post-racial America to edu- to do sort of race-based education is what they call the HBCUs. And, and so I think, though, when you hear like a Justice Scalia um, or uh, a late Justice Scalia make comments about uh, the quality of black students at, at some of the elite schools and maybe they need to go their own schools, um, or when you look at a, a Black Lives Matter or you look at sort of the racial divisions that are kind of bubbling up around Donald Trump's candidacy, I, I, you know, it's you, you start to, you know, when you got an 18-year-old kid, like, you know, you, and it's time for them to make that next step, you do, I think, want to protect them to some degree from huge, huge sort of missteps and being misunderstood. And I think the HBCUs create an environment that fosters a sense of confidence at a time in which they really, really need it. Mm-hmm. So um, you had mentioned earlier, and I'm, I'm going to come back to it. How, explain to our listeners how the financial challenges at Howard University mm. fit into your your overall narrative. Well, as I mentioned, I was writing a book that that was decidedly narrative and storytelling, not mm-hmm. just some kind of abstract uh, you know, scholarly look, and there have been many, at the importance and the value proposition of HBCUs and what have you, and a lot of them are less, you know, not very critical. Uh, they're kind of big, wet kisses to the legacy and, and the pride of the institutions. But in this case, also in 2013, a letter leaked 
and it was a scathing letter by one of the trustees at Howard University named Renee Higginbotham Brooks. Why don't you say a little bit about her as well? So she's Renee, also central to this narrative. Yeah, Renee Higginbotham Brooks uh, grew up actually not too far from from here, and her folks were long, long time uh, HBCU grads. Proud. I mean, she probably has ten or eleven of them that went to Howard University. Many of them went to North Carolina Central, um, Winston-Salem State, you know, and she knew at a very young age because she would go to the black, uh, you know, the the, H, the football games and it would be a big regalia around that and she just had that HBCU pride. And one summer, uh, actually her folks um, went to school, uh, do, took some classes at Howard when she was just a child. I think she may have been six or six seven years old, and she decided right then, look, I want to go to Howard. And, you know, she was an excellent student, and she wound up at Howard. Not only, and after Howard, she went to Georgetown Law and became a very, very, she married a Howard graduate who, uh, Howard, um, he went to Howard Medical School, and so she um, moved to Fort Worth, became a very, very successful attorney, and was a major donor. And, you know, those the, the donors, you know, that, that got her recognized at the university. So she ended up uh, uh, as working as a trustee, and she was a trustee for a good 15 years. And she started to see some stuff that she just did not really like. You know, she, 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 she questioned the, the way the school was spending money. She questioned the ratio of how many students there were to faculty. Uh, you know, she questioned the wisdom of, of keeping that um, Howard Hospital running, which was, while really, really a, uh, an asset to the indigent community in, in D.C., was also a major money drain to the university. And then she questioned even the ethics of the, the board itself, who was uh, it was run by a guy named Barry Rand, who was a really powerful uh, uh, corporate leader. He had spent years at Xerox. At that time, he was the head of uh, AARP, uh, and so uh, which is what is an American retired people association for retired. Right. So I happen yeah. to I happen to know that I'm a yeah, member. The, are you a member <laughs> card carrying? Yeah, I'm a car, I am yeah. a card carrying member, I, I, so yeah, I, I know I the acronym too. But I don't carry my card. I just, <laughs> but they've sent me one. Okay. Um, so she she overheard. It starts where she overheard a conversation in which uh, the new president. They were selecting a president, uh, and she overheard a conversation in which B- Barry Rand. And Sidney Ribot, the candidate, were pretty much discussing his what his new salary might be. It was all behind closed doors. It was all without, you know, the within earshot of the of the compensation committee. It was all just done as sort of an old boy kind of backroom deal. And it really bothered her. She sort of kept quiet for a while, and then she started to feel like the guy running, Sidney Ribot, who had come from uh, Ball State uh, in, in Ohio, and I may, uh, I hope I'm, I'm, I've got that right, um, was just basically making a mess of things. And she started a real, real uh, 
she started a campaign, if you will, to get him ousted. So that is one of the narratives I tell in that story. And part of that that campaign included the letter that leaked. And when it leaked, it said, look, we will be out of business in five years if we don't get our act together. And uh, it was an embarrassment to the university. I mean, Howard is Howard, right? Howard mm-hmm. is the... Uh, the only HBCU with a federal mandate. It's got a, uh, it's a budget in the, uh, it's in the federal budget. It's a line item. Um, Hasty Coates calls it, author of Between the yes. World and Me, he calls it the Mecca. Calls it the Mecca. <laughs> I mean, Tony Morrison, uh, as a faculty member, uh, started the, got her first ideas for her first novel, The Bluest Eye right there on that campus. It's the, you know, Thurgood Marshall's, you know, that's where he is um, an alum. I mean, you, you just, you you name them. They're huge, huge, huge. Uh, and a powerful board. I mean, you talk about a board that had Dick Parsons, who was the CEO of Time Warner. You had Vernon Jordan on the board. I mean, this wasn't is who... Colin Powell, wasn't Colin, Colin Powell? Colin Powell was on the board. At one point, Jack Kemp was on the board. Former Renee, uh, HUD uh, secretary, Jack the HUD, Yeah, HUD's former HUD secretary. Uh, you had um, Debbie Allen and Felicia Rashad. I mean, you name it. These were huge, huge names on that board and people that she kind of took on. to, to and, she, and she ended up winning. I mean, as you know, they have uh, uh, Wayne Frederick, is the Dr. Wayne Frederick, a surgeon, who is now the president of, of the university uh, um, and, and, and a Howard graduate himself, a younger guy with a, a different kind of vision. But it took a lot to, to and, and she suffered. She's no longer on the board. She became kind of persona non grata. But I use her story because she embodies the kind of courage, I think, that's going to be necessary to just turn these universities around. Um, moving ever so slightly, tell us about the conversation that you had with um, Dr. Walter Kimbrough. Tell us who he is regarding Dr. Dre. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was kind of a fun conversation. I mean, again, I really try to find the the freshest voices in which to tell this story. And and Kimbrough is known as the uh, hip hop president. He is the president of Dillard University, and uh, and that's in and that is in New Orleans. Obviously, he gets the hip hop moniker because he is a big hip hop aficionado uh, and a big fan of uh, you know. Dr. Dre and 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 NWA and um, at one point he read somewhere that Dr. Dre was giving I think it was seventy million he and his business partner uh, to to USC and it really bothered him because he thought like well wait a minute Dr. Dre built his empire on basically off the love of of young African-Americans. That's just integral to his brand. And yet when it's time for him to give, he gives it to USC, which really doesn't need the money. And, you know, he was actually, he read that while he was in the airport. And then he looked around and he noticed a lot of, you know, young blacks walking around with their Beats headphones on, which is a Dr. Dre product. And he thought, wow, you know, we have kept this dude in business. And 
I don't know. I mean, he, he had to ask himself whether he felt not in, quite entitled, but he definitely felt like that Dr. Dre t- had taken his community, his audience, his customer for granted. And he started to say as much. He wrote a, an op-ed in the L.A. Times saying as much. And then he really, really says quite a bit more in the, in my book. Um, it, it's another one of those ironies that sort of sort of keeps popping itself up in, throughout your narrative. Just yeah, I love pregnant the, with I mean, the 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 the, yeah, the ironies, and and that is it. I mean, we there are ironies that that I mean, when we get the mic, often we just sort of talk about it in whites and blacks, but there are ironies there. I mean, one chapter which I struggle with, I spent I spent a lot of time talking with Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby obviously is was a huge, huge force within the HBCU community, and I talked to him prior to all of his legal troubles uh, with the, you know, the sexual harassment and rape and all of those allegations. Um, and I, he called me. He had heard that I was working on this book about HBCUs, and he wanted to be part of that conversation. He's very—he's a student of HBCUs. He loves them. I mean, in his—he's got skin in the game. This is a guy who had—he and his uh, wife Camille had given what twenty million to Spelman. You know, endowed that that university had created uh, that the uh, the iconic show which I grew up on, a different world, which is set at fictitious Hillman College, and it was just fun, and it made at after after a real serious dip in enrollment at black colleges made it kind of cool and hip sexy to just be at because he would sport his Howard t-shirts or his Morehouse shirts or whatever uh and so and 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 then he also did just hosted events raised a lot of money so for for black colleges and um when he got in that trouble you know it felt like part of the apocalyptic <laughs> moment for a, I mean if you could have imagined talk about Murphy's Law, you have your most probably visible uh, promoter get in that kind of trouble. He's out now. I mean, Spellman is even giving the money back. So yeah, that was there was that irony of of a guy whose legacy was so tarnished, but uh, had also played such an important role in building these institutions. And then I got people like uh, the woman. Her name is Dottie Bellato who runs the Bayou Classic, which is the annual Thanksgiving weekend classic in New Orleans, and it's been around forever. College football, right? College football. And this is a woman who's really, really plugged in in, uh, politically and took over kind of a withering classic. I mean, the Bayou Classic, which had once been very, probably the top classic, was waning. Uh, and part of it was just mismanagement and poor marketing, and it it worsened after Katrina. I mean, I, I think that it spent a couple years even in in playing it in Houston or something, right? And it's and that's just a played huge, in New Orleans, is that right? Yes, okay. it's played in New Orleans, and it is uh, it's it's um, Southern and Grambling, and it's just a big, big. Uh, I mean, it's it's uh, like three days of of, of events. And the game being a small portion, and it's a huge boon to the economy as well. And so this is a white woman who took over leadership 
of a black classic from a black company that had not really been doing it great. So she's faced backlash. So the question is, do our major assets that need to be protected need to actually be in the hands, the being managed by African-Americans if they're not doing a great job? And how's the performance been? It's actually the numbers are up and the performance has been pretty awesome. I spent the last uh, uh, Bayou there and it was it was awesome and it was very robust in terms of professional development, uh, networking. It was just not just sports. And and it was the draw, the Battle of the Bands draw. There were a lot of, you know, she's been drawn. She's using her community. She basically said, look, New Orleans, this is ours. This is not just about Africa. This is ours and it's fun. And so, you know, she's got her white friends and she's got, you know, she's got everybody coming to that. Well, but let me just stay with that because that creates another irony in that you have this event that has been traditionally African-American. By your account, um, the numbers are up and it's up because you have someone having the city embrace it more, which, which sort of dilutes the population or, or changes the demographic of who's going to the game. And yet I could see some pushback on that. Like all these new dollars aren't necessarily black dollars. I can see pe- some people being a little pushed out of shape by that. Absolutely. But, you know, then you got to, and, and, and there's another one in there too, the Magic City Classic, which is down in, in Birmingham, Alabama, which had been managed by uh, African Americans and is now taken over by a sports marketing company. And they are just, no, they're looking at it as an event. I mean, they do some NASCAR stuff, they do other college football. Auburn and 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 I think they do uh, you know Alabama uh-huh. you know they do uh, golf right and so, so you, it's just another event it's just another event and they look at it and then they say well you know what why isn't anyone the what this is supposed to create scholarships for students and you have people coming in that just hang and party and never come to the game and buy a ticket so these are people who we're not. We you, they're not aren't contributing to the revenue. So how do we how do we do that? They have no. This is not a cultural sort of ex- event to them. This is business to them. So they say, well, you know, you can't come. We're going to start like making sure that it, if you reach this point in the in the community, you know, we're going to co- uh, we're going to put a sign out, and right here you end up paying. And whether you come into the game or not, if you want to hang out, you pay for a ticket because you're costing. Uh, our students you're costing the students so wow. you got in yeah and so there's going to be some pushback for that because people like to go to these things and just hang out and never spend a dime right um one of the primary arguments uh for H- hbcus historically has been it serves as a safe haven for students of color do your work is that still true absolutely i mean i went to so, so the, the the irony is i went to university of missouri and just a few months ago, the University of Missouri football team decided that they were going to boycott. It was a national story. It was this one guy, a, a young black guy, who went on kind of a hunger strike and decided uh, he wasn't going to, until some things changed, that he wasn't going to eat. And I was thinking, like, for my days, like, dude, you might die right down <laughs> out there on the yard because this is, we're talking, I mean, I came out of there in the mid-'80s, and it was shocking to me that it was still the same, that the students were still up against it. They were still largely invisible there, right? And I, I spend days at Johnson C. Smith 
and I might get into a conversation about one of our students and their plans to go to grad school or how they're struggling with this. And we may talk 40 minutes about one student. And I, and I just think when I can't imagine that 40 minutes in my four years at University of Missouri got spent discussing me and my interests or how what my relationship with my mom or dad was and why do I look sad today or why am I, you know, what I might need. Uh, and, and we do that all the time for students. And so I think part of it is the size, sheer size. You could just spend time focusing and caring and nurturing in a, in a way and you can help tailor students' interests to, to kind of a, uh, a future that you think uh, matches their interests. And you, you, just, you just get more, more hands-on, just mm-hmm. more hands-on. At best, you do. How about the historical genesis that created the need for HBCUs? Is that still relevant today? I mean, we just talked about that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I think we are, the racial divide in this country, the chasm, that conversation is becoming more uh, intense and stressful. I think um, that there are, uh, absolutely, I think that the probably the worst promoters of their business are probably the HBCUs, right? That this is a time where they could make the case, hey, you know, this is a place where you can come and you are going to be the, your interest is our interest. You will be the center of our, our mission every day, right? And no other place can promise you that. Just come here, and we can we can deliver on that. And that is kind of the value proposition of the best, you know, like a Spelman. You know, Spelman goes, and this is Spelman College, the all-female school in Atlanta. That is their kind of selling point is like, you know, this is the only place on earth where black women— are going to be center stage and get the best, the best. That's this is where you come. When you prior to this you didn't live through that, live that, and and after this you probably won't. But while you're here, you are you you're important. Now earlier you sort of touched on I'm gonna come back to it. You you said that this book is reflective of American story. Why? Why'd you say that? I just felt like even though you know, we all kind of have a stake in this. I mean, they go they go way back. I mean, they are the, um, you know, I mean, I think the slavery was an American institution. I think the um, push to educate freed slaves then became um, um, just a matter that that African Americans and or, and whites um, played a real real. Um, role in and it was it was divisive as it then as it is today i think that um again there's stakeholders on both sides there are black people who care who care about these institutions as there are whites i mean you you know a lot of i mean i've talked to people who you don't know where they're coming from like a, a, some whites feel like hey you it's great have your own schools have your own schools, you know, because when you come to ours, you know, it changes some things. So they end up, there's some racism on that as well. It's all very, very subtle. And you have, uh, but, you know, you got um, so many engineers, um, so many scientists, you know, that get their start from an, uh, an a, like an A&T um, you have that North or, Carolina or A&T? Zav- yeah, North Carolina A&T or um, Xavier, the uh, only Catholic um, 
HBCU, which is down in New Orleans. Um, so many, I mean, so many members of Congress have their roots in HBCUs. I mean, these are, I mean, they permeate our institutions, right? Our classrooms. So, yeah, it just is, it, it's, it's an American story. No, no way around it. It is um, a great piece of work, uh, a great piece of scholarship uh, in that narrative nonfiction style that, that, that you talk about. The name of the book, Where Everybody Looks Like Me, and the author has been my guest, Rod Steigill. Thank you for oh, being on the you, public Byron. rally. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Ron Stodgill. Coming up, my conversation with Dr. Elwood Robinson, Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University. Continuing our conversation with HBCUs, I'm honored to have the Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University, Dr. Elwood Robinson. In 2015, Dr. Robinson became the 13th Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University. Chancellor Robinson, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Let's begin with you providing the landscape for HBCUs in North Carolina. What's encouraging? Where do you see some prospective challenges? Well, I should begin by saying that um, I have about 30 years of experience in, with, with HBCUs in North Carolina, uh, having spent most of my academic career at North Carolina Central for about 28 years, and so, and also as a student. So I think if you if you add all that together, I certainly spent almost a little bit over 40 years uh, uh, looking at these institutions. I'm encouraged more so than ever about the uh, the the future of HBCUs in North Carolina. Uh, I think the landscape is changing. I think people are now beginning to get a different view, a different perspective about these institutions because I think a lot of these institutions, and I know we here at Winston-Salem State University are doing that, are beginning to tell their story in some more significant ways. And I think that the different platforms in which we can tell our story today with the whole notion of social media and how we can get information out to people in a, in a very serious and productive way has enabled HBCUs to begin to tell their story. Uh, alumni and people who go to these institutions understand the value and importance of these institutions. It literally is those individuals who don't have that kind of connection that really don't know the history of these institutions. And so I think it, this day and this time uh, gives us a great opportunity to begin to tell the story. Now, how have HBCUs evolved um, to meet 21st century challenges and because you well know, uh, with increased options, the HBCUs of the 40s and 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s, were addressing different challenges than what's confronting you now. So how, how are you uh, meeting those challenges in the 21st century? I think one of the things that we're doing here at Winston-Salem State University is to begin to capitalize on the history and tradition of HBCUs. The culture that's associated with attending an HBCU is one that resonates with a lot of folks. And so over the years, that has continued to be how HBCUs have sustained themselves. So you take an institution that was started, you know, based upon not having the opportunities or not having access for those students to go anywhere else. So HBCUs served a very important purpose uh, in terms of their historical kind of development. But if we look at how these institutions were, were started, and every day that I wake up and the work that I do at Winston-Salem State is really grounded in how this institution was founded. 
and why this institution was founded. It was for recently freed slaves, and that, that was about providing a high-quality education to folks who could go out into this world and make a difference. So this institution was founded upon high-quality education and preparing the whole individual to go out and be productive citizens. And that's what, that's what Winston-Salem State University has done for over 123 years. That's what other institutions, other HBCUs have done. Uh, but just like higher education in general, it means that we have to redefine ourselves. We have to transform ourselves to meet the needs of today's student, the needs of the millennials, those individuals who are going to college today. So what we say at WSSU is we're providing an education that prepares students for the future, whatever it is. We don't know what the future is going to be in 2020 and 2025 and 2030, but what we know is that change is going to be fast-paced. It really is going to require a different set of tools, uh, skills, that students need when they come out of college today. And our first interview we're doing, our whole show um, tonight is, is based on HBCUs, focused on HBCUs. And our first guest was uh, Ron Steigill, who I believe you met mm-hmm. uh, when he was here speaking, yes. author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me. And one of the things that he uh, suggested uh, to me in our interview, and he also alluded to it um, when he was here at, in Winston-Salem State Campus, is that in the increasing decades that the number of HBCUs is going to decrease significantly. Do you see it like that as a trajectory? Do you see something different? I, I see something very different. I don't think it's going to uh, decrease considerably. I mean, I think that we have to keep this in focus. Uh, HBCUs are just like higher education institutions in general. Uh, some fail, some some don't do well, and that's, that's the case in all the different aspects of higher education. So we shouldn't be concerned, overly concerned, I think, when one or two or three institutions aren't doing well. I would be a little bit more pessimistic if we if I was seeing a huge percentage of those institutions going by the wayside and not living up to being uh, good, productive institutions who are providing quality education to its students. But I do see is it really is an opportunity for us to rethink uh, the HBCU model to enhance it and bring it up into the 21st century. Uh, so I'm optimistic, but I, I just happen to be someone who the, the glass is always half full for me. Speaking with Dr. Elwood Robinson, Chancellor of Winston-Salem State, where we host the public morality. Back in September, you spoke at the White House uh, about philanthropy and fundraising. Talk a little bit about that, if you will. One of the things that we know, particularly for public HBCUs, and this certainly is an issue for all, certainly including private HBCUs, but we have to make sure that we are providing the kind of resources to these universities in order for them to be successful. As a public institution, Winston-Salem State University received a large percentage of its funding from the state. And the state budgets in North Carolina and around the country have been reducing considerably over the past years. Uh, And so what that means is that we have to make sure that we're doing the kinds of fundraising that's necessary for us to carry out our programs and offer our students this educational experience. So I know it's important to to engage folks, uh, to engage our alumni, uh, to have them give back in some significant ways. And so we've been working extremely hard engaging our alumni to, to make sure that we can increase alumni giving. And the average rate, a lot of folks don't know, uh, alumni across the country don't give back at very high rates. In fact, the average is about 10% of alumni will give back to their college or university. We're trying to increase that. So when I got here, one of the focuses that I had was increasing alumni giving. 
I really wanted to get our alumni over 10% because that was a huge benchmark for me. Uh, we were slightly below 10%. We had a campaign where I told alumni. You had a did you cut a deal, didn't you? I cut a deal. What was the deal? I, a, I cut a deal. I said, you know, if they could, if we could get to 10%, uh-huh. uh, that I was going to do a happy dance. And you know, little did I know that the the alumni and everybody was going to hold me to it. And that's public, is it? That's, pu- that's that the it, public domain, is it not? It is. It is that. It yeah. is that. I've seen it. It went viral. I've seen it, so I know. Yeah. <laughs> that was a setup question. I already I, knew I, the answer. I got, I got you. <laughs> so, uh, and it really is. It was an opportunity for us to do something significant, and I think a lot of folks saw that. And some of the organizers of the HBCU conference that we have at the White House had gotten wind of it, and they asked me to come and talk about uh, alumni giving and philanthropy at HBCU. So I think it was that that dancing video. Uh, is that what uh, it was? That, 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 that got me. Uh, now, the, the White, White House didn't make you dance, did they? The White House did not make me dance. Okay. Did not make me dance. <laughs> uh, but it really is an opportunity for us to really engage alumni and to uh, get them to understand that it is important to give back and philanthropy has been so much a part of my work and my initiative at WSSU since I've been here. And we've had, we have a wonderful student body who's really started engaging uh, themselves uh, in terms of giving back and preparing for the next generation of students at WSSU. Talk to me about, specifically talk about uh, Winston-Salem State now, talk to me about the strategic plan that, that you've just uh, rolled out. We are uh, so excited about this plan, and I should say that uh, we rolled out the plan on January 28th at, at uh, K.R. Williams Auditorium, and we had about, about 1,400 people there, and we had the band, and we had cheerleaders, and we rolled out the plan with an amazing fanfare that one would think about you would do for an athletic competition, but this was from, from an academic, the core of what we do at WSSU. Uh, we rolled out this plan, and it, it was live-streamed around the globe, and a lot of folks saw it. And, and I should say, Byron, that we actually yesterday, last week, just found out that we won an award uh, for that uh, rollout. Oh. Uh, HBCU Grow. Oh, award, congratulations. Silver Award for that. So we're very excited about the strategic plan. It is building upon the success that WSSU has had in the previous strategic plan, really thinking about what kind of education do we want to make sure that each and every student gets. So with the world changing so fast, being a technologically driven society, a global society, we can't keep up with the fast-paced changes. And so what we want to do is to make sure that students have these essential skills that will enable them to go into a world to be adaptable, to be adjustable, to engage in critical thinking, analytical thinking, problem solving, be professional in terms of how they present themselves, uh, speak well, communicate well, all of those skills that once upon a time they were known as soft skills, we've elevated those to essential skills because now the workforce says that that's what they want. These are the skills that are important. I just saw a huge diagram about how these skills have changed over the past several decades. And now social skills and these kinds of skills that we're talking about are now the number one thing that employees look for 
uh, when folks come uh, into their workforce. You know, I, I um, just recently wrote a column on the importance of uh, liberal arts education, mm-hmm. and I saw that that was emphasized in the strategic plan. And one of the things that someone said to me was, well, are you saying that people um, shouldn't take, say, business ethics? I said, no, they shouldn't take business ethics. But if you know, Pla- if you've read Plato's Republic as well, right, right. that helps you understand <laughs> the business ethics. And I think that's what I hear you right. saying in the plan. It's not just being specific to, I have this major, this degree, therefore I'll get this job. You've got to be more broader than that. Yeah, you've got to be more broader than that. And I want folks to understand when we talk about this kind of liberal education, we're not talking about dismissing content. Content is important and content is powerful and you ought to know that content and you ought to know your discipline. But we're talking about creating a society where you get outside of your discipline and you have conversations with other folks, English Mm. folks talking to biologists and biologists talking to mathematicians. And that's how the world is today, being able to work in teams and being able to work in groups. And that's how you elevate. I mean, the world is about relationships today. The world is about innovation and creativity. Uh, We had an open house uh, about a couple weeks ago, and I told the parents, I said that I'm not necessarily interested in your son or daughter going out and getting a job. I'm interested in your son or daughter going out and creating a job, designing the new workforce of tomorrow. Uh, because I tell folks that getting a job, uh, we get that. You know, Winston-Salem State was number one in the U.N. system in the percentage of seniors who were employed upon graduation. So we are in the space of making sure that folks have jobs. We want to get in the space of making sure folks create jobs and design new jobs. But, you know, the strategic plan, as I read it, comes at a time where there are many, uh, I won't be specific, but there are many calling for the elimination of such courses in, in public institutions. What, what's your response to that? Well, I think that it, it kind of goes in, in waves, and the whole notion of a liberally educated person has been something that's been around. It's not new. It's been something that's been around for 50 years, maybe even 100 years. In fact, that's how the academy was started, that a learned individual. And that's what Simon Green Atkins talked about when he was talking about designing and developing this school, that I want to create an individual who is well-rounded, who's a learned, who's a deep thinker, who goes out and makes a difference in the world and become leaders. Uh, so it's been around for a while, and, and you get these, these kind of shifts where the pendulum will swing one way or the mm-hmm. other. Uh, it really is about educating folks about the power of a liberal education within the context of what we see with the ever-changing workforce. Classic example, 10, 15 years ago, uh, when you and I, Byron, we, we were in school, we went and we majored in something. Six, we seven got, years ago. You know, six, seven years ago, <laughs> we got out, we went out, and, and we got a job in, in that major and in that craft, and we worked, and we, we thought about, like our parents, that we were going to work for 30 years and then retire. But now folks get out of college, they can expect to change jobs five, six, seven, eight times uh, during their lifetime. And so you got to be flexible, you got to be nimble, and you got to have the kind of skills that would allow you to be adjustable and adaptable in terms of how you pursue your, the workforce. Um, by the way, uh, speaking with Dr. Elwood Robinson, uh, Chancellor at Winston-Salem State, I just want to be clear, when we, when we were talking about liberal education that, has, that does not have a political distinction, so please do not call the public rally saying that we were advocating for liberals, capital L, as opposed to conservatives. But, um, but just sort of that, 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 well, that well-roundness that, that, that you talk about. And um, it also speaks to the possibility that someone could very well end up in – with a major, but not end up in a field that 
that major would suggest. Yeah, you know, absolutely. When I first got here, and we had gone down this path for about four or five years, but when I arrived in 2015 and I was thinking we were ending the last strategic plan, getting ready for this plan, I really spent a lot of time having conversations with people in the community about what kind of student would they like to see graduate from Winston-Salem State University that would come into your business. So when I met with uh, political leaders, when I met with business leaders, when I I met with folks in the financial industry, they all told me that, you know, I'm looking for someone that has these set of skills. I'm not necessarily interested in a major per se, but someone who possesses a growth mindset, someone who comes with, with the idea that I'm coming into a workforce where I can be a partner in that workforce and however it shifts and changes. And so folks were telling me that I'm not that concerned about the major, but I'm more concerned about what skills that individual brings to the workforce. So, you know, that has, has given me fuel and ammunition to say, you know, I think, you know, we're going down the right track and we're preparing these students for the future. And in our closing minutes we have together, what would be the prototype student uh, that would excel here at Winston-Salem State? Well, one of the things that we do so well is that we take students that come from under-resourced families, students who have the academic um, indicators that they will be successful, that they've done well in high school, they have a decent GPA, they've done well on some of the, the metrics that we use in terms of SAT and those kinds of things, although I think they're less, less important in terms of determining whether someone will be successful. We take those students, they come here, we provide the kind of resources that they need in order to be successful. So if you come from an under-resourced family, if you come from a family that's first-generation college student, then you need the kind of support to help you navigate this higher education system. So what we do is that we put in place the kind of support systems that allow them to be successful, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. So we do that well. And the thing that I'm most proudest of, you know, has been uh, last year when Social Mobility Index ranked Winston-Salem State University as seventh in the country. And those schools that take those students from under-resourced families, they come to college, get a high-quality education, go out into the workforce, get a job, change the trajectory of their families, change the trajectory of the economic uh, mobility of their communities. That's the student that we have, and those are the students that we serve, and those are the students that make a difference. Wait, isn't that part of the legacy of historical black colleges? That just, isn't that part, of the, hasn't that been part of the legacy? That's been part of it. You know, what historically black colleges have done is they've looked at it and said, yes, access is good, uh, but what happens when you get to the university? Do you have the kind of support system? Does that university have the kind of cultural awareness and sensitivity that speaks to who you are as an individual? So it's not enough just to let a person from an underserved family or an ethnic minority get into whatever university they want to get in, and we applaud that. It is what happens once they get there. What happens to minority students when they get to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or whatever? And so we want folks to have access, but what HBCUs have said Access is just not enough, that you've got to have more than that uh, in order for students to be successful. Dr. Robinson, thank you for being on the public rally. Thank you for the invitation. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Elwood Robinson, Chancellor of Winston-Salem State University. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we'll speak with Chris Groh, Executive Director of Equality in North Carolina, about North Carolina's controversial House Bill 2 legislation, 
next time on The Public Morality. And now for my closing remarks. I happen to believe public policy is a moral issue because it reflects priorities. My moral barometer for measuring societies includes how it treats its young, elderly, and those on the margin, economically and socially. Using that as my rubric, it will probably come as no surprise that I consider the minimum wage to be a moral issue. Does it make good economic sense holistically as well as morally to keep the federal minimum wage at $7.25 per hour? Where should the minimum wage stand today? Perhaps the more important question, how should the minimum wage discussion take place in the public discourse? Resistance to raising the minimum wage relies heavily on defining it as a job killer. It is an argument of irony suggesting that raising the minimum wage will hurt the very people that proponents are trying to help. Counter-narrative argues that productivity has doubled since 1969, but wages have not kept pace. Had wages kept pace with productivity, it's quite possible the minimum wage would currently stand at $16.50 per hour. There you have it. One side wants to suppress wages appearing to long for labor standards that predate the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. The other side vociferously demands $15 per hour. How might we adjudicate these polarities? Should we continue the popular methodology, which is to find the argument that corresponds with our previously held beliefs, unable and or unwilling to realize any validity in the opposing argument? There simply isn't much data to suggest an increase in the minimum wage hurts employment. In fact, the opposite is true. Historically, increases in the minimum wage have enhanced consumer spending, labor productivity, while minimizing turnover, which is commonly associated with low-wage jobs. Conversely, the aforementioned economic benefits are not realized when wages are kept low. For as much as I might philosophically support $15 per hour, it might be in the best interest for the overall health of the economy to shoot for a $12 minimum wage by 2020. An increase to $15 potentially pushes the economy into uncharted territory. It is uncomfortably high relative to the nation's median wage. Moreover, $15 per hour could very well be the benchmark that mitigates the associated economic benefits when raising the minimum wage by indeed becoming a job killer. At $15 per hour, there are some states where that might place an individual in the 70th percentile in terms of wages. How could that not lead to increased unemployment? This is where the argument of irony is validated. Low-wage workers, many have families, need additional take-home pay. But by raising the minimum wage to a point that may look good on paper, but in reality is useless if one is unemployed. That is not to suggest there will be no job loss and an hourly wage of $12 per hour, but certainly not enough to become a deterrent. When the North Carolina legislature prohibited local municipalities from creating anti-discrimination policies, they also prohibited local governments from raising minimum wage levels above the state level for contractors with which it deals. This is punitive and immoral that potentially allows for workers to be economically exploited. But $12 per hour by 2020 feels like the right floor for an issue that is best addressed regionally. It is unfathomable for New York City, San Francisco, and Pocatello, Idaho to have the same minimum wage. There are a number of high-wage cities in some states that may be able to exceed $12 per hour. Obviously, 
many will not be able to surpass it. The moral argument for increasing the minimum wage is not so much the actual agreed-upon wage, but rather that the conversation moves the trajectory toward a number that honors workers and is sustainable economically. That is the conversation that moves us toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.